Hello and welcome to What Could Be Better Than a Home, the podcast of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust. This is the fourth episode, Volume 2, Forever Housing. Chapter 1. When Emperor Charles invented a form of housing better than renting or owning. This volume is about housing tenure that never ends. Once you move in, you never have to move out. We expect this for home ownership. Why, the house right across the street from me was owned by the family who built it until only a few years ago. Starting in the 1930s when it was built, successive generations grew up in that home. It's not hard to see why they wanted to stay. It's a beautiful stone house with a slice of paradise for the backyard, and, of course, great neighbors. So, my across-the-street neighbors stayed in their home for eight decades. Three or four generations lived in that house. And because they were homeowners, they could have stayed there for another 80 years, or 800 years. Their tenure in that house across the street could have lasted forever. That's the power of home ownership. After all, what could be better than a home that will always be your home? But this volume is about a different type of forever. When we talk about housing, we might only think of home ownership as being forever. But should we? In this volume, we travel the world in search of housing that is forever, but maybe not in the way we might expect. Stay tuned. Introduction. I promise you won't be bored. When I talk to people about housing policy, it's landlord-tenant regulations that really get people excited. I'm not being sarcastic. People really get into this stuff. I can't understand why, but whenever I talk about housing policy, this is what everyone wants to hear about. In a handful of countries, renting is considered superior to owning. How can this be? Well, it's through landlord-tenant regulations. I actually wanted to do an entire volume devoted to landlord-tenant regulations, but that's just not possible. There's not enough information to fill even a single episode. It turns out that landlord-tenant regulations are very, very simple. First, you don't want tenants to pay too much in rent. This is accomplished in a very straightforward way, rent controls. Rent controls are viewed very skeptically in this country, but rent controls are actually quite common in the developed world, as we'll see at the end of this episode. The key with rent controls is to make sure that rents are low enough that tenants can afford a place to live, but high enough that landlords can afford responsible building maintenance. The second step, length of tenure regulations, is the topic of today's episode. You see, rent controls can create affordable rental housing by setting a maximum price, but they can't create the secure tenure we associate with home ownership. Coming up, we'll meet someone named Moritz, who inherited a home from his mother. Even though his home is spacious and beautiful, his monthly housing costs are less than he pays in utilities. Sounds like home ownership, right? Maybe you're thinking that his mom bought the home decades ago, she eventually paid off the mortgage in full, so when Moritz inherited the home, there were no mortgage payments left to make. He only has to pay property taxes and homeowner's insurance, and maybe that adds up to less than his utilities. But Moritz and his mother? 
they're both renters. That spacious, historical home, it's rental housing. And it's not public housing either. The landlord is a private, for-profit company. So, how is this possible? It's through indefinite length of tenure regulations. Austria is one country with indefinite length of tenure regulations. Austria's indefinite length of tenure regulations were created over a century ago, in 1917. The story of how that happened is almost too fantastic to believe. And while the story behind Austria's length of tenure regulations is quite dramatic, it's important to recognize that landlord-tenant regulations are extremely common in the developed world. You don't have to have a crazy history, like Austria's, to wind up with progressive landlord-tenant regulations. To prove it, we'll end the episode with a quick tour of similar landlord-tenant regulations in Western Europe. I know what you're thinking, this sounds really boring. If you knew this episode was about landlord-tenant regulations, you might not have hit play. But stay tuned, I promise it's way more interesting and consequential than it sounds. Part 1. The Cruelty of Emperor Franz Joseph Austria's length of tenure regulations were created by Emperor Charles of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Er, his full name was Karl Franz Joseph Ludwig Hubert Georg Otto Maria Habsburg. That's seven middle names. We'll just call him Emperor Charles. But to understand why Emperor Charles created indefinite length of tenure, we have to understand what came before him. And what came before him was his great-uncle, Emperor Franz Joseph. Emperor Franz Joseph reigned over the Austro-Hungarian Empire for an extraordinary 68 years, one of the longest reigns of any monarch in the history of the world. Austria-Hungary was a massive empire, stretching from Poland and Ukraine in the north, to Romania in the southeast, and Italy to the southwest. It's unfortunate that Franz Joseph ruled for so long because he was extremely cruel. When Franz Joseph was coronated in 1848, much of his massive empire was in open revolt or had seceded, forming democratic governments to replace the hated empire. As emperor, Franz Joseph helped crush these democratic movements and reintegrate many of these rebellious subjects under rule of his empire. Franz Joseph was a true enemy of democracy. But Franz Joseph is best known for his role in the outbreak of World War I. History books sometimes treat the outbreak of World War I as a neat cause-and-effect chain of events. Franz Ferdinand, Franz Joseph's nephew, was assassinated in Serbia. Because of this assassination, Austria-Hungary invaded Serbia. And because of the system of alliances, almost all countries in Europe were pulled into the conflict. But the assassination of Franz Ferdinand isn't what caused World War I. What caused World War I was Franz Joseph. Let's be honest, the death of one man is not a reason to start a war. Franz Joseph did not have to invade Serbia. Historians write that the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, quote, failed to make any impression whatsoever on ordinary Austro-Hungarians. The assassination was murder, and murder was wrong. 
But murder did not constitute cause for war, or so thought most of Franz Joseph's subjects, over a million of whom would die in World War I. What's more, Franz Ferdinand's assassin, Gavrilo Princip, wasn't even a resident of Serbia. He was a lifelong resident of Bosnia, then a part of Austria-Hungary. He snuck into Serbia illegally to undertake the assassination plot, sneaking past Serbian border guards who would have turned him away had they caught him. So, a subject of Austria-Hungary assassinates a member of the Austria-Hungary royal family and... For this reason, Austria-Hungary must invade Serbia? Clearly, Franz Joseph did not need to invade Serbia. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand did not need to start World War I. So, why did Franz Joseph invade Serbia? It turns out that Franz Joseph and his advisors had secretly been planning to invade Serbia for some time. They were waiting for any pretext to invade. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand was the pretext Franz Joseph had been looking for. The decision to invade Serbia had already been made. He only needed an excuse. Ironically, Franz Ferdinand himself had argued that a war with Serbia should be avoided at all costs because it could lead to a war between Austria-Hungary and Russia. In other words, Franz Ferdinand predicted that if Austria-Hungary invaded Serbia, that the catastrophe of World War I would result. In other words, Franz Joseph knew he was playing with fire because he had people like Franz Ferdinand warning him. But to Franz Joseph, human life was dispensable, and the risk of a massive, destructive war did not deter his drive for more and more power. Of course, this is a podcast about housing, and Franz Joseph's cruelty extended into the housing system. We'll spend an upcoming episode learning about just how bad things were in Vienna under Franz Joseph. But for now, just know, it was bad. Tuberculosis was known as the Vienna disease, because the quality of housing stock was so miserable that it literally made people sick. For the privilege of living in this decrepit housing, landlords charged extortionary rents. Rents were so high that it was not unusual for eight or more people to rent a single-room apartment with no plumbing or heat. Some people rented beds for six hours at a time. They got to sleep for six hours, then had to return to homelessness. Not only were rents high, but landlords normally raised rents every single month. This forced a substantial number of people to move every single month because they could not afford the rent increases. Think about how stressful it is to look for a new apartment, and now imagine having to do this every single month. People were constantly in search of housing, and often they didn't find it. We know from the records of Vienna's homeless shelters that every year, One out of every four people in Vienna spent some time living in a homeless shelter. You did not mishear that. In a given year, a quarter of Vienna's population would spend some time in a homeless shelter. Vienna's landlords were monsters, and Franz Joseph turned a blind eye to all the suffering they caused. Moreover, the homeless shelters were funded by private charity, Despite the immense scope of the problem, homeless shelters never made it into the imperial budget. Franz Joseph didn't care enough about all this suffering to fund even a single bed of a single homeless shelter. 
This is the world Emperor Charles inherited in 1916 when Franz Joseph died. One built by cruelty. A world built by a dictator who viewed human life as dispensable. World War I was the natural result of Franz Joseph's cruelty, and over a million Austro-Hungarians would die in the conflict. Charles' reign began at roughly the halfway point of World War I. Charles played no part in starting it. He also played no part in building the appalling housing system of Imperial Vienna. Part 2. Emperor Charles tries to undo Franz Joseph's mistakes. Emperor Charles is a fascinating historical figure. Whereas Franz Joseph started World War I, Charles was actually beatified by the Catholic Church for his attempts to negotiate a peaceful settlement to World War I, well over a year before the conflict ended. In the Catholic Church, beatification is the first step to becoming a saint. Charles hasn't gotten past that first step. In any case, what we do know for sure is that in early 1917, shortly after his November coronation, Charles secretly started negotiating a peaceful end to the war with Austria-Hungary's enemies. This opposing alliance was known as the Entente, and the principal members of the Entente were Russia, Britain, and France, though there were less powerful countries in the alliance. In the Catholic Church's telling, Charles, moved by compassion, wanted to stop the bloodshed of World War I, but faced an almost impossible balancing act. Much of his own court believed the war to be just, and had they found out about his secret peace negotiations, would have tried to overthrow him so they could carry on the war. So Charles had to try to figure out a set of terms that would be acceptable to his enemies, but also to members of his own court who might literally stab him in the back for even considering peace. It was a fool's errand to think there could be any common ground between sworn enemies who seemed to want nothing more than war. To make things worse, the Entente had no interest in peace. Charles wasn't the only one who tried ending the war. It turns out that Germany also secretly tried ending the war, but they started even earlier, in 1916, before Charles' coronation. At that time, Germany and Austria-Hungary were actually winning the war. They had just defeated one of the lesser members of the Entente, Romania. But the major powers of the Entente, Great Britain and France, refused to hear German offers of peace, even though they knew that their actions would result in the needless deaths of many millions of people. So we know for sure that Charles secretly tried negotiating peace and that the Entente wouldn't hear of it. And we know that there was significant risk for Charles to do so. He could have been deposed or even assassinated by his own court. In this telling, Charles was motivated by humanitarian concerns. He believed all the killing and suffering to be wrong and did all he could to bring the war to an end. But there's a difference darker way to understand these events. Perhaps Charles wasn't motivated by compassion. Maybe Charles was motivated by self-preservation. In other words, perhaps Charles was just as cruel as Franz Joseph, but more cunning.
Perhaps Charles, unlike Franz Joseph, recognized that the war could not be won. Maybe Charles negotiated for peace because he realized before anyone else did that he was on the losing side. Or maybe Charles realized that, win or lose on the battlefield, the war was causing such incredible suffering that as soon as it ended, outraged subjects would overthrow their governments. World War I was fought over nothing, and people were outraged over the family members drafted to die in terror over nothing, as well as the constant food shortages and sacrifices for the war effort. If allowed to inflict even more destruction, the end of World War I would be a very dangerous time to be an emperor. After all, when the war finally did end, four empires, then four of the strongest powers in the entire world, were overthrown. The German, Turkish, Austro-Hungarian, and Russian monarchies were toppled by subjects outraged over the war. Remarkably, Russia was even on the winning side. Even though the Entente would win the war, ordinary Russians' outrage over the war still boiled over into revolution. Perhaps, Charles realized before any of his peers that a continuation of the war put all the emperors on a path to their own overthrow. In this much darker telling, Charles is just as evil as Franz Joseph or any of the other world leaders at the time, but he is more cunning, recognizing that he could lose his head in revolution if the war isn't brought to a very quick close. Perhaps he realized that continuing the war put his own life in great danger, and he sued for peace out of self-preservation. It's totally possible Charles was motivated by humanitarian reasons, or by self-preservation, or both. So, was Charles a humanitarian, or was he just as cruel as Franz Joseph, but more cunning? We come to a similar question when looking at the plight of Austria's renters. In 1917, again, shortly after he was coronated, Charles created the Tenancy Act, sometimes known as the Tenant Protection Act. This law ended the abuses of Austria's landlords by forbidding evictions and rent increases. Remember, the lives of Vienna's tenants were truly miserable, and this law eliminated the landlord's worst abuses, truly a humanitarian victory. But there's another way to look at the 1917 Tenancy Act. In this telling, Charles isn't motivated by humanitarian concerns, but by shrewd self-interest. In this telling, Charles is just as cruel as Emperor Franz Joseph, but more cunning. You see, so many poor Austrian men had left to fight in the war. So most of the people getting thrown out of their homes by landlords were the mother or wife or sister of a soldier. Imagine the war just ended. Your best friend in the army, Hans Pater, saved your life more than once, but he died right before the war ended. You get back home to Vienna and set out to find Hans Pater's widow. You want to tell her what a great guy her husband was and how you were honored to have known him. You find Hans Pater's widow and their young son living on the streets among garbage and rats. Their landlord hiked their rent and they could not afford it. The two of them have been homeless ever since. You are outraged. Hans Pater sacrificed so much for the emperor, and this is how his family is treated? 
You have no trouble finding more outraged men from your regiment. They too have come home to find their wives, parents, grandparents, friends, and siblings thrown out on the street by their landlords. After all they gave for the empire, for their families to be treated like this, everyone wants revenge. Hearing about Hans Pater's widow is the last straw. Everyone wants revenge, and you all have been trained to use violence. Violence, after all, is all you have known for the last three or four years. Emperor Charles probably imagined a similar scenario. All these angry men returning home with military training. This could turn into an uncontrollable, violent situation. And these men might not limit their vengeance to the hated landlords. They might want to kill Charles. After all, Charles had the power to stop abusive landlords. If he did nothing, he would be blamed for their actions. This was a revolution waiting to happen, and Charles knew his life would be in danger if he did not stop the cruelty of the landlords. It's impossible to know what was in Charles' heart. Was he moved by the plight of Austria's tenants? Or did he have self-serving reasons for the 1917 Tenancy Act? Or was it a mix of both? We can never know for sure, and that's what makes Charles such a fascinating historical figure. Unfortunately for Charles, the 1917 Tenancy Act was too little, too late. His empire could not be saved. Fortunately for Charles and his family, they did not get to keep their empire, but they did get to keep their heads. The war officially ended on November 11, 1918. Charles was forced to flee with his family to Switzerland. The monarchy was over. After the war, Charles had delusions that he could regain the throne of Austria, or Hungary, or both. But by law, no Habsburg could return to Austria until they renounced all claims to power. Charles never actually renounced his claims to power. He lived out his days in exile on the island of Madeira, which is a part of Portugal but is actually closer to Africa. British soldiers served as Charles' bodyguards, and the British government even helped him in an unsuccessful attempt to regain the throne of Hungary. Charles died in Madeira in 1922. Until the day he died, Charles held out hope that the Austrian people would vote him in as emperor all over again. In letters to friends, Charles is clear that he thought it was wrong for the monarchy to have ended, but he knew he would have been violently deposed and probably executed if he didn't step down voluntarily. Charles even declared all the acts of the democratic government null and void, since monarchy was the rightful system of government of Austria, with him at the helm. It wasn't until 1961 that the Habsburg family finally renounced their intentions to regain power as royal family of Austria, when his son, Otto, finally did so. Now, when a dictatorship collapses, there are a few ways to build a new world. The most straightforward is to simply replace the dictatorship with a democratic government, keeping all the old laws and regulations in place. That's the most orderly way, and that's what the Austrians did. Of course, once the new democratic government is in place, it is up to them to repeal all the dictator's laws. Laws censoring the press, or forbidding freedom of assembly, for example, need to be repealed by the new democratic government. The democratically elected Austrian parliament did all this, and more, including abolishing the nobility. 
But for all they accomplished, the new parliament never got around to repealing the 1917 Tenancy Act. Charles had planned on repealing it on December 31st, 1918. It was only supposed to be a temporary wartime measure. But the monarchy ended before that date arrived, and so Charles never got a chance to repeal it. And the new parliaments, well, they found that they actually liked the law. They're not alone either. More than a century later, the law has still never been repealed. Since 1918, there have been some minor amendments, and some housing has been exempted from part or all of the law. But with only a few amendments, the original 1917 Tenancy Act remains law in Austria to this day. Part 3. The 1917 Tenancy Act. Today. As we just learned, the 1917 Tenancy Act made it illegal for landlords to increase rents or terminate a lease. This was supposed to last until the law was repealed. But since the law was never repealed, this means that landlords have not had the right to end a renter's tenancy for over a century. This situation, where a landlord does not have the right to end a lease, is known as indefinite length of tenure. So, what does indefinite length of tenure look like in practice? What does it mean if a landlord cannot end a lease? Well, in the United States, most apartment leases are for one year. That means that once per year, every year, your landlord has the right to decide if you get to stay or if you have to move out. That's true even if you have lived in the same apartment for 30 years and your landlord lives out of state. But in Austria, a landlord can only end a lease if the tenant falls three months behind on rent or has damaged the property. As long as you don't do anything crazy, you can stay in your apartment forever. But if you want to move, you can. Renters can end a lease and move out at any time after one year by giving the landlord just one month notice. Now, forever means forever. Children can inherit leases from their parents under the exact same lease terms their parents had. Often, this includes their monthly rent payment. As of 2015, nearly a quarter of all leases for private rental housing in Vienna were signed prior to 1994. It is not unusual for someone to live their entire life in the same apartment. They are born and grow up in their parents' apartment, and then as adults, they inherit the apartment when their parents pass on or decide to move. In other words, indefinite length of tenure gives renters the same security of tenure as homeowners. What would your experience be like if you had an indefinite length of tenure? Germany requires indefinite length of tenure on nearly all rental leases, and British-born German journalist Brian Mellican wrote about some acquaintances with indefinite length of tenure. Wolfgang and Yuda, a retired couple, have been in the same apartment for 35 years. They paid just 600 euros each month for rent. That includes utilities for their three-bedroom apartment. That's the same rent they paid when they first moved in three and a half decades ago. Now, in order to entice them to move in 35 years ago, the landlord promised that at the end of year five, if they were still there, he would hire decorators to spruce up their apartment while they were on vacation. 
35 years later, their landlord is still bound to that original agreement, and Wolfgang and Yuda get their apartment redecorated for free every five years. I mentioned Moritz at the top of the episode. Brian's friend Moritz inherited a lease from his mother for her three-bedroom historical apartment. He still pays his mom's original rental amount. The lease he inherited from his mom is so old that his rent payments are lower than his utility payments. Now, I should say that there are some loopholes. Landlords are sometimes allowed limited rent increases. In both Austria and Germany, the rules governing rent increases on indefinite lease terms are very complicated. Much too complicated to cover here. And Austria recently started permitting three-year-long leases. Nevertheless, countries with indefinite length of tenure regulations, such as Austria and Germany, have some of the lowest home ownership rates in the entire world. That's because an indefinite length of tenure gives tenants the same security as a homeowner without the downsides of homeownership. For example, landlords are still responsible for repairs and maintenance. If a furnace breaks, it's the landlord who must foot the hefty bill to replace it, not the tenant. If there's a problem with the plumbing, it's the landlord who has to hire a plumber, not the tenant. So indefinite length of tenure combines the advantages of renting with the advantages of homeownership. In other words, Emperor Charles created a type of housing that is better than renting or owning. It's almost too fantastic to believe, but indefinite length of tenure was created by a dictator trying to convince his subjects not to revolt. But they revolted anyway, and the law has been in effect for more than a century. Conclusion Landlord-Tenant Regulations World Tour We end today's episode looking at how common landlord-tenant regulations are. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, rent controls are viewed very skeptically in the United States. But a study by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, of 26 nations found that 15, more than half, had some form of rent controls. I also mentioned that length of tenure regulations are also very rare in the United States. But, like rent controls, length of tenure regulations are very common in the developed world as well. A lot of young people dream of spending a summer backpacking through Europe. If you want to backpack through the countries of Europe with the longest length of tenure regulations, then listen up. In addition to Austria and Germany, Switzerland, Sweden, and the Netherlands all have indefinite length of tenure regulations. Other countries lack indefinite lease terms, but have long standard lease terms. In Belgium, for example, the standard lease term is nine years. It's unclear whether a local government in the United States could reproduce the landlord-tenant regulations of Austria. For starters, as of 2018, in 31 states, local governments are forbidden by state law from instituting rent controls. There are only a handful of cities in just four states, plus Washington, D.C., with any rent controls. And in many states, it is unclear if the courts would strike down as unconstitutional any regulation of lease terms, let alone lease terms that could last forever. However, the city of Portland did find a loophole in 2017. 
At the time, Oregon was one of the 31 states that prohibits rent controls. So, rather than creating a rent control ordinance, which would have been illegal by state law, Portland enacted an ordinance that requires landlords to pay their tenants a cash payment of up to $5,000 if they ever increase rent more than 10% or if they refuse to renew a lease. Miraculously, this ordinance survived a challenge in the Oregon court system. So even though rent controls were illegal, Portland tenants got rent controls since Portland landlords must pay a cash penalty if they hike rents. And Portland tenants also got the right to an indefinite length of tenure because Portland landlords cannot refuse to renew a lease without paying a cash penalty. However, this penalty is only a few thousand dollars. Some landlords may find that it is more profitable to pay the penalty so they can charge higher rents. So, did this ordinance actually work as intended? As it turns out, we will never know. Less than a month ago, the Oregon state government reversed its prohibition on rent controls and made rent controls mandatory for every single rental property in the entire state. Oregon is now the only state with a statewide rent control. Since the statewide rent control is stricter than Portland's ordinance, Portland's ordinance no longer has any effect. Maybe rent controls are about to make a splash in the United States. We've got plenty of examples to learn from. What Could Be Better Than a Home is a production of Milwaukee Community Land Trust LTD in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Research was done by me, Chris Kirko.